Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, the international impact of a U.S. indictment. And so far as Canada is concerned, um, we have um, we have said that they have consistently given space to anti-India extremists and violence. New Delhi continues to dismiss concerns of Indian involvement in the murder of a Sikh Canadian. This despite a similar plan uncovered in New York and the criminal indictment of an Indian national who was allegedly involved. How will this affect India and its relations with both Canada and the United States? Also. There was one plane that met the requirements. That's the plane that we bought. Awarding a multi-billion dollar contract to an American company while dismissing the Canadian alternative. What impact will that have on Canadian workers and this country's aerospace industry? We will speak with Unifor. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The fallout from a U.S. indictment is still being felt in three countries today. On Wednesday, an Indian national was charged in a murder-for-hire plot to assassinate a Sikh American. And there is a Canadian connection, as U.S. prosecutors say the intended victim was a known associate of Hardeep Singh Najjar, who was killed outside of B.C. Gurdwara back in June, and whose killing was raised by the Prime Minister in the House of Commons this fall. Take a listen to some of the reaction we heard this week from both Canada and India. We've taken note of the U.S. Justice Department uh, filings in the United States yesterday. Uh, again, I had been updated on some of this work by CSIS and the RCMP uh, as far back as last summer, and I know from discussions last evening they continue to be very engaged with a whole series of American partners. Uh, as regards the case against an individual that has been filed in a U.S. court, uh, allegedly linking him to an Indian official, this is a matter of concern. We have said, and uh, let me reiterate, that this is also contrary government policy. Insofar as Canada is concerned, um, we, have, um, we have said that they have consistently given space to anti-India extremists and violence, and that is actually the heart of the issue. Uh, our diplomatic representatives in Canada have borne the brunt of this, so we expect the government of Canada to live up to its obligations under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. Well, joining us now is our weekly journalist panel. Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Tony McCharles, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. And Robert Russo, the former Bureau Chief for both the uh, Canadian Press and the CBC. Hello to the three of you. Hello, Michael. So obviously we're going to begin with India here because, you know, U.S. prosecutors say that the intended target in the U.S. was on the same target list as Singh Najjar. So, so I wonder, with that revelation, how does that change uh, or further our, our understanding of what happened here in Canada? I mean, there are a lot more details in that indictment, obviously. We've learned that there were more targets of this plot. Uh, we've learned, uh, actually, uh, it, to me, it's, it's very interesting, the window on what happened here, the detail that we got out of the indictment versus what we got in Canada, which was a blanket statement that there were some allegations. But it's pretty clear now. It's because there was an informant, a source inside the plot uh, in the U.S. that could reveal these details, and enough so that they can take it to court. Um, 
whether that me what does that mean for an investigation ending up in any kind of charges here in Canada? That's pretty unclear to me. Uh, but it was a fascinating glimpse inside what prompted the Prime Minister to go public in September. Mm -hmm. I'll get to that in a second. But Rob, your reaction first. Sure. I, it makes it look like it was an exponentially wider plot, um, multiple targets, transnational in nature as well. Um, and it makes India look more like one of those authoritarian regimes that wants to eliminate its opponents uh, off its own shores. And there aren't many countries that do that. Russia is one of, one of those countries. Vladimir Putin's Russia is one of those. And it, and it begs the question, how close do democracies want to get uh, to a, a, a country that is prepared to execute its opponents o overseas on their own shores? Mm -hmm. uh, Bob? Well, uh, look, I mean, for me, it's the Americans were successful in f uncovering this, arresting the person. Um, Canada was aware of this. We've got nobody arrested. We didn't even manage to protect the life of, of, of uh, Harjeet Singh Najjar, who, uh, who was assassinated by a masked gunman. Um, we know that three other uh, Canadians were also on the hit list. Fortunately, they were not uh, killed by this. But, uh, you know, you compare almost everything, you know, whether it was the Chinese police stations where the FBI makes arrests, we get, we put a police car outside uh, uh, these uh, fake uh, Chinese police stations, um, no arrest. And now we have, you know, a Canadian who was assassinated and still no arrest. And the RCMP, I've not been able to say at all uh, where they are in terms of this investigation, but we all know the longer it is, the less likely they're going to be arrested. Yeah, well, well, without a doubt, it's, it's very extraordinary that this has mm -hmm. happened even in the first place. But you, it's also jarring, though, because it's India, right? Like, if you look at mm -hmm. this country's Indo-Pacific strategy, India plays a big part of it. And in fact, when you go through that strategy, uh, India is named as a partner in defending the values Canadians hold dear, and yet this happens. So do we need to rethink that partnership? Do we need to, to rethink India, at least while Modi is in power. It seems to me that that is a broader discussion for many countries in the world, including the U.S., because, look, India has been the bell of the ball ever since China was aggressively uh, on around the world, acting in a way that pretty clearly signaled its authoritarian uh, you know, character and coercing other countries and leveraging its economic weight. Many countries around the world, India, or rather, Canada and the U.S. saw India as the counterweight to that, right? The bully in the region, the democracy, the world's largest democracy. We could all embrace it because it was a democracy and a growing economy. Um, but I don't think that even as bad as all this is, is enough to suddenly change the foreign policy of countries like Canada and the U.S. and the U.K. and Germany, EU. Everybody wants to do business in India right now, and I don't see this as fundamentally changing that calculation. They will still, and we've heard it already, those governments all say they want to engage with India. I mean, Joe Biden and his secretary of state have had these same conversations that Trudeau and his people had with the India officials. The only reason perhaps they got a bitter, better hearing is because of the economic partnership there and the economic weight that each carries. So, yes, maybe we do have to rethink it a bit, but I don't see that fundamentally the desire to engage India will change. Rob? 
You know, it's interesting. This happened uh, a month before uh, Prime Minister Modi was welcomed to the White House in Washington, mm -hmm. where there was a glittering ball. Uh, celebrities were invited. Uh, President Biden uh, showed no uh, traces whatsoever of this being in any way a hiccup. Uh, it, it is clear that th um, this is one of those equations. You know, Henry Kissinger just, just died a couple of days ago. He used to talk about values versus interests. Uh, and this is one of those times when countries are going to decide whether or not they want to do business with a country that shares its values or whether it's in their interest to have a relationship uh, with a country like India. Right now, it looks like the United States, taking a look at India's growth, I think it was 7.6% uh, GDP growth last quarter. They believe it's probably in their interests to continue to nurture the relationship with India while trying to draw red lines around what India can do, uh, but not necessarily share values with India. Mm -hmm. yeah, Bob? Well, first of all, India under Modi is drifting towards authoritarianism, and that's something that everybody should be concerned about. But Noted it, by human rights groups uh, around the world. Absolutely, but real politics is real politics here. India is the world's largest uh, uh, has the largest population, it's a fast-growing economy, and more significant, it is the most important counterweight to China, the world's second biggest economy and the world's second biggest military. The United States needs uh, India, and so, do all the, so does Vietnam, so does the Philippines. All of those countries in the region are very, very concerned about China, particularly the way they've been operating the South China Seas, but they've been extending their reach uh, in, the, in the, these shipping tr trade zones. And there is no way in the world that we're going to have a rupture in Indian relations with uh, Western countries because of that. Mm -hmm. And don't forget, look, all of this was known to the governments, at least um, at the highest levels of government, before all the G20 leaders went to India in September and had meetings with Modi. And yet it was only after that that Canada uh, came forward with its allegations, but again, with very little detail. And yet, you know, Biden at that G20, we heard nothing of, you know, the, Biden's concerns around the plot that was unfolding in the U.S. when he was in India. It, would, it was all behind closed doors. Why? Because nobody wants to embarrass the Indian government on that stage right now. It's not worth it to them. Mm -hmm. Well, th that leads me to my, my other question, because you were talking about the Prime Minister standing in the House of Commons, and it's mm -hmm. it's really a marked difference from how we've learned about the American allegations, right? It, it had to be filed as an indictment. Once the indictment was released, then the details yeah. came out of the investigation. I mean, well, there's a reason why the Prime Minister uh, came out earlier than everybody else, is that, you know, we were going to publish the story, and he just wanted to, he didn't want it to be in a newspaper, so he got out ahead uh, 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 head of, the, of the newspaper uh, story. I'm sure that he would have preferred to wait until these indictments were unsealed before he uh, came out and spoke about the issue. Uh, but so I don't think it was a it wasn't an, an issue that he was uh, trying to rush out and embarrass Modi. It was just that, uh, you know, the media got ahead of him. Yeah, the details the details were out there. Uh, but does this mean that we need to think about how we as a country start approaching India then? Because if if this is happening at the same time, how do you how do you address these issues while still pursuing something like the Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, we've already started to reconsider how we deal with them, haven't we? As a fallout of this, I mean, yes, um, some visas that were previously suspended now are being issued again by the Indian government. But this has caused a huge diplomatic rupture. Uh, Canada withdrew 
41 of its diplomats, two-thirds of its diplomatic contingent in that country. It's going to affect, and it has affected, you know, the, the ties between the two. And, you know, it's fine for the Trudeau government to say, well, there are people-to-people -people ties and business connections, long-standing business and people-to-people -people ties that will carry through. But a lot of that depends on services provided by diplomats on the ground in the country. And, uh, you know, sure, they've re re renewed giving some visas, but I think that we're, we're already seeing the impacts of this relationship and suffering as a result. Um, where does it go from there? I'm not sure. But like I said, in the bigger picture, I don't see this government also abandoning engagement with India over it. Okay. Uh, quickly losing time. And before we're done, I do also want to uh, bring up another story, of course, happened uh, early in the week, the invocation of Alberta's Sovereignty Act uh, over the clean electricity regulations. Uh, is this something to be concerned about? Uh, uh, Rob, I'll begin with you. Well, I think, I think it's something to be concerned about in that it looks like it's another um, sort of opening on the national unity front. Uh, all of us kind of came of age covering national unity in, in, uh, in, in Canada when there was a threat coming from Quebec. But uh, you look at what's happening in, in Alberta and what's happening in Saskatchewan, and there are more, there's more and more open defiance, it looks like, of the federal government. Now, is it going to actually amount to anything? Uh, you listen to Minister Wilkinson, and he says, uh, I think he told CP yesterday or the day before, that he is prepared to be flexible on when some of these regulations come in. Some of them are not going to come in until 2044. Um, you know, I, I'm fond of saying uh, I'm very popular at Christmas parties with my family because I have the magic quarter trick. Uh, I, I pretend to take a quarter, put it in a mayonnaise jar, put it under a porch, and that next thing you know, it's teleported. Well, you know, resolutions like this are very much the same way. Uh, the, the Premier can make a resolution, pass a resolution, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, it's, it's the courts that will ultimately decide if it actually gets there. I think there's lots of room for negotiation and discussion before anything like that happens. Well, the unity is going to be um, in even more uh, fractured because we are expecting the federal government to unveil uh, a new cap on oil and gas emissions on the industry. And uh, you know we know that Alberta and Saskatchewan are, are loaded uh, for bear on this one. And uh, this is probably gonna end up in the courts as well. And you know the problem that this government has is that they're they're bleeding a thousand from a thousand cuts on the carbon tax, but they made that ridiculous move to satisfy Atlantic Canada. Now you've got Indigenous people saying, "Well, what about us?" We've got everybody else in the rest of the country saying this, and then you have Alberta and Saskatchewan saying, "We're we're being mistreated here." So I think the country is going to face increased. Um, national unity problems, not from Quebec now, but from Western Canada, and uh, it's concerning. Mm -hmm. Tonda? I take a little bit more sanguine view than that on it. Um, I think that federalism is a, a system fraught with some of these challenges and you know, when there are conflicting priorities, especially in areas where there are overlapping jurisdictions like environment. So I think the country is working its way through some of those uh, conflicts and challenges. I don't think everything would be magically resolved by a change in government at either level, because like Bob said, you know, things like the oil and gas cap, th those are going to be ongoing challenges uh, for any government and any stripe of political government that comes into play. Because as far as I know, I don't know of any major political party that's actually said ditch climate change policies altogether and we won't fight climate change. Every, it's, it's about how do you get to the action to address climate change. 
And so I see that federalism has built in it a bit of these conflicts. And yes, a lot of it relies on the good faith interactions by all these players. And right now, I think there are some antagonisms that are going on. But, you know, to a certain extent, it was ever thus. And, you know, if Pierre Poiliev becomes prime minister, which the polls suggest he might, um, you know, he, does, he opposes Daniel Smith on the pension plan changes that she wants to make. He will find himself clashing with provinces over various things, right? There were two conservative leaders, Danny Williams in Newfoundland and Stephen Harper in Ottawa, that clashed mightily over regulation of how you do offshore oil benefits and stuff. So I see that it's some of the conflict is built into the system, but the system has functioned and can still function, I think, as long as players like premiers actually follow sort of the way thing, disputes get regulated. And that's through the courts, not through arbitrary acts of deciding, I'm going to decide what's unconstitutional and not the courts. Those are the things that bring in, raise the conflict. Well, except that that is exactly what that's the, what the Alberta Act she, does, right? She, so no, it's... but she, she dialed back some of the, even in this week's motion, she dialed right. back the whole notion that I'm going to declare unconstitutional. She said she's not going to force anyone to do something that's not legally permissible. So already some of that rhetoric is changing. And then on what, Tuesday or Wednesday, she was out hugging Christia Freeland and uh, Randy Boissonneau after they announced the Dow chemical plant. So and, and next week, take a breath. Everybody uh, take a breath. Minister Gilbo and, and Daniel Smith are going to be in, in uh, at COP together. Uh, and she's on an invitation list to dinner. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure she's going to be bringing a stack of some of those clippings that she was talking about, uh, saying that he, uh, Minister Gilbo hadn't read. But it, that would be uh, entertainment value if they'd throw open the doors and let us scribblers and, and uh, lens people <laughs> okay. have a listen. <laughs> Who's going to take a bet on that one? <laughs> but listen, uh, out of time, uh, thank you for that. Uh, we'll, we'll convene. We've got two more weeks of the sitting parliament before uh, the year's done. So for now, Tonda, Rob, Bob, thank you for the time. Have a good weekend. You too. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. We begin in the United Arab Emirates, where global leaders have gathered for the 28th annual United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP28. Today, Canada's Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo announced a $16 million contribution. It will go to a global fund designed to help developing countries recover from loss and damage from climate change. I want to congratulate the COP28 presidency for their leadership in securing the adoption of the fund on the first day of COP28 and for making a contribution right away. It is good to see others step up with early contributions and we hope many, many others will join. Will join. Gilbo also let it be known today that two major court decisions at home have delayed this country's plans to implement a cap on oil and gas emissions. Gilbo says the Supreme Court's ruling on the Impact Assessment Act and another federal court decision on Canada's plastics ban means the federal government needs to determine if its latest proposal infringes on provincial jurisdiction. The federal government can certainly intervene when it comes to matters of, of, of pollution and including climate pollution. But we have to be very careful not to impede on, on, on provincial jurisdictions has meant that we, we have to make sure that, uh, that, that our regulation does exactly that, that it tackles pollution without infringing on, on uh, provincial uh, jurisdiction. And, and that has meant that it, it has taken a little bit more time than uh, maybe we had initially anticipated. 
Canada's COP28 delegation includes provincial, territorial and Indigenous representatives. The UN Climate Change Conference will run until December the 12th in Dubai. Two federal ministers were on opposite sides of the country today to boost support for Canada's supply chains. The Transport Minister Pablo Rodriguez and the Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson were at the ports of Halifax and Vancouver. They both announced the creation of a national supply chain office. The ministers say this new office will help improve efficiency and resiliency, including mitigating impacts from disruptions. Here and in facilities like this across the country, we are making investments to ensure that our critically important supply chains, the economic links that ensure affordable goods and products are de delivered to markets and to Canadians, are as sustainable and as competitive as possible. The Ontario Liberal Party will name its next leader this weekend. Four candidates step forward to lead the party, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie, Federal Liberal MPs Yasser Nakvi and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, as well as Ontario MPP Ted Shu. The winner will lead the party in the next provincial election against Doug Ford's Progressive Conservatives. Ballots will be hand-counted on Saturday and the results will be revealed at an event at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre the same day. More than 103,000 party members were eligible to vote. And finally tonight, the U.S. House of Representatives has voted to expel Republican Congressman George Santos. The 311 to 114 vote means Santos, who represents New York's 3rd Congressional District, becomes just the sixth person in American history to be removed from the U.S. Congress. Santos has been plagued by scandal since he was indicted on 23 federal charges, including wire fraud, conspiracy and identity theft. Canadian firms that were hoping to get a shot at replacing Canada's aging Aurora surveillance planes were disappointed yesterday. Ottawa refusing to open up the tendering process and announcing a multi-billion dollar contract with the American company Boeing. There was one plane that met the requirements. That's the plane that we bought because that's the plane we need right now. And, and it, had, it had those requirements. I, I have great confidence in Canadian aeronautic industry. Um, and, you know, th there are some really great companies um, out there, but they did not have a plane that met the these requirements. And unfortunately, right now, we needed that plane. Well, to talk about this deal, we're now joined by Danielle Cloutier, Quebec director for this country's largest private sector union, Unifor. Danielle, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, we just heard it from the Defence Minister in the interview that we did last night. The primary argument that Ottawa makes in choosing Boeing is that there was no other plane that could have done the job and in the time frame that Ottawa was looking for. Uh, how do you respond to that? Oh, the fact, the, the fact proved that it's not true. Uh, basically, there was the, uh, the uh, Mitsubishi plane that was already flying in the air and, and in use. So, and they were better on that possibility of contract. Uh, and apparently, Bombardier have uh, given all the, uh, the needed information to show that the plane would have been in the air, uh, meeting the, uh, the date of uh, delivery uh, set by the contract. Mm -hmm. so, so, you, so you push back on that statement. You know, what is Unifor's biggest concern, though, in choosing Boeing and not a Canadian company's bid? What's your concern here? 
what we don't understand is the lack of vision of the government. Uh, why are Canadian, Canada is the probably the only country that do not use his own needs in terms of military equipment to try to develop his own capacity and his own expertise into it. Uh, we never uh, argue that uh, the, the government should give the, the contract to Bombardier blindly. What we said is the Canada government should put in place a fair bid uh, to allow other companies like Bombardier to prove and demonstrate that they can achieve it. And uh, and it's not what the government have done. Um, so, you know, I, I believe it's it's not a good decision from the government, and it's not the kind of decision that will allow Canadians to develop expertise, competency, and uh, to be able to take their share in that big market. Uh, you know, we're never going to be able to do, like, Bomb, uh, bombing plane. But in terms of that kind of plane surveillance, we can have uh, a bit of a, of the market in there. And we don't understand why Canadian government does not allow the company to prove themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, Danielle, can, can you build on that a little bit? You, you mentioned the fact that, you know, we this country will not have the opportunity to develop the expertise. What type of jobs are lost when a, a, a contract goes to the to a U.S. company rather to a Canadian company. What type of opportunities are lost? How many job numbers are lost? Would you say? Oh, I, I, we do not pretend that that contract by per se will make causing lost in term of job. Uh, but the thing is, there's a few countries around the world, about five, that can build a plane uh, totally, including the, the certification of the plane. Canada is one amongst them. There's about two cities in the world that can still achieve that. The same thing. It's about Toulouse in France and Montreal in Canada. The thing is, how can we maintain uh, that expertise if uh, we cannot develop further uh, and and enter new market like the military uh, market. Uh, so so that's the point. It's not in terms of job loss right now, but it's term of opportunity for the future and you know positioning ourselves as a leader and continue to be that leader. Mm -hmm. Now, Boeing is required uh, to make targeted investments in Canada as a result of this deal. And apparently there are discussions to create uh, a Boeing center of excellence in this country. Does that address any of your concerns in any way? Oh, obviously we cannot be, uh, you know, we're in favor of that. It's, it, it's good news. Uh, but again, uh, you know, it's, it's not the kind of vision that we, we believe the government should develop. Uh, we never pretend that we need to stop having, uh, you know, relation with, uh, with Boeing. Uh, they, they have a lot of employees in Canada. A lot of them are unionized with us. So we do respect that company and we do respect the fact that it's provide good Canadian job. Uh, but, you know, being the one who owns uh, you know, those invention and those capacity is is different. And that's that's the thing we should aim for. Mm -hmm. Is there any way uh, that the Trudeau government could, could make up for this? If not this contract, is there uh, another that could counter what you see as, as the potential harms of, of going this route instead of opening up the, the bid process? Yeah, we do believe that government need to develop some, you know, uh, 
<clears throat> industrial politics, uh, main, in aerospace, uh, other few as well. But let's talk about aerospace. The Canada should develop a real uh, industrial policy to make sure that we're going to put them, uh, the, you know, everything's around those companies there uh, to continue the good job and to even grow and develop. Uh, and also the government should revise, uh, you know, what we get in return when it's a, a, another country, you know. Uh, it's not clear whatever, uh, what could be the kind of, uh, of job we're going to have back, what kind of uh, good qualification job we're going to have back. It could be anything. It's not clear. So the government should make sure that the, the end result, when the, the, we have something coming back to Canada from those contracts, that that thing has a real value in terms of uh, building you know, prosperity for all Canadians. Daniel Cloutier, thank you very much for the time today. My pleasure again. Thanks. And that is our program. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching Primetime Politics. We'll be back next week. Until then, have a great weekend.